Volume 1, Chapter 5 of Evelyn, or A Heart Unmasked, a novel by Anna Cora Mowat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Chapter 5 The Face Recalls Some Face As Twere With Pain. Byron. When last we parted, thou wert young and fair. How beautiful let fond remembrance say. Bowles. From the same to the same. November 28th. An old familiar face. A face that we have known in earlier and perhaps brighter years. That is linked with all that we have loved of the past. Every liniment of which we have scanned when the ambient mist of trusting, hopeful youth yet floated before our enchanted eyes. Ah, necromancer memory! What visions come rushing back upon sorrow's sobered sight when such a face rouses thee from thy slumbers? Yesterday afternoon I was hurrying through Broadway, and, in spite of haste, glancing from side to side, as is my wont, and speculating upon the probable histories of those I encountered, upon the griefs that had furrowed the careworn faces, the joys that illumined the radiant countenances flitting by me, when my eyes rested upon one face that riveted them in spite of myself. Involuntarily I stopped, every pulse quickened, my breath came gaspingly forth, and for a moment my brain reeled. When I looked again, the person had passed on, but I could not be mistaken. It was Ernest Elton. Fifteen years had borne away, in their flight, much of the manly beauty for which he was once renowned, but his forehead, always fine, looked broader and higher than formerly for the dark and luxuriant locks that clustered about it in youth were thinned away and besprinkled with time's snowflakes. His eyes, though sunken, were still bright and piercing, but a deepening color was apparent in either cheek, from which the brilliant flush of health and happiness had wholly vanished. His once transparent skin was strangely sallowed, the whole expression of his face had changed, and spoke of passions which have rather wearied themselves to rest than been subdued by reason. I, too, must be changed, I reflect, so changed that he did not know me. And the same chilling sensation shot through me, which filled my breast when, some years since, I stood before my mirror with the first detected gray hair in my hand, when I sought for and found the first incipient wrinkles that were planting their crow-feet about my eyes. In a moment the feeling vanished. I forgot the gray hair and the coming wrinkles, and thought only of Springfield, the pleasant home of my life spring, I thought of my sunny, flower-decked chamber, the summer-house, and the woodbine that stole in at its windows, 
of the hopes that sprang to life as I breathed the incense of those variegated flowers, and that perished before they had withered. Then I beheld, with dreamlike distinctness, my father, in his favorite armchair, drawn out upon the trellised porch, with spectacles on his nose and newspaper in his hand, my mother's pale but ever serene countenance rose before me, and the face of another, that of a young and handsome man, a visage full of freshness and hope and enthusiasm and apparent truth. The face was the same that I encountered but yesterday afternoon, the same yet how different. I wish I could have spoken to Mr. Elton once again, for I can now look with quiet resignation upon the past, and why should we not be friends? I would have spoken to him of his wife, of his children, if he has any, and perhaps made him doubt that what has been ever was. These thoughts engrossed my mind until I reached Mr. Merritt's, but were then quickly dispelled. When I entered the parlor, I found Evan bounding about the room with a battledore in her hand, following a shuttlecock through the air, playing by herself for a lack of a companion. Her eyes sparkled and her cheeks glowed from the graceful exercise. She was too much absorbed to observe me. Mrs. Willard sat on one side of the blazing fire, knitting lace, which, by the by, is a very fashionable employment of the ladies here. Ellen was seated on the other side of the fire, with an unusual companion, a book, in her hand. I might have remained some minutes unnoticed had not Evelyn's shuttlecock lit upon my hat, barely escaping the tip of my nose. Carissima, explained Evelyn, with her arms about my neck. I am so happy you have come. I want somebody to play battledore with me. Her fingers were quickly at work on my hat strings. I was disencumbered of cloak and shawl, and before I could salute either Mrs. Willard or Ellen, the battledore was playfully thrust in my hand. Evelyn had taken her place, lightly tossed the shuttlecock in the air, as lightly struck it, and it was glancing through the room to be received by me. I could not hope to escape from engaging in the game, and played perforce until Evelyn remarked that I looked wearied and in worse spirits than usual. "'What is the matter, Carissima? Are you ill?' said she, throwing down the battledore and tossing her shuttlecock upon the piano. "'Let me explain to you that Evelyn's warmth of heart renders it impossible for her to call those whom she loves by their formal titles, and she generally bestows upon her especial friends some appellation more congenial to her feelings.' Carissima is the name she has given me, either for its resemblance to Catherine, or because the term is expressive of her affection. I assured her that I was well, but fatigued, and needed rest, at the same time taking a seat beside Ellen. Ellen smilingly pointed to her book, as she marked the page, and said, Is it not beautiful? I read the title, it was The President's Daughter by Frederica Bremer, and replied, Yes, 
are you not deeply interested in that sweet adelaide oh it is adela who interests me most was her feeling answer she was so homely so unhappy so unfortunate she was so like that is something something like i divined the conclusion of her sentence for she left it unfinished but mrs willard prevented my replying by calling upon me to admire her lace at that instant a violent ringing of the street doorbell attracted our attention it was succeeded by a bustle in the entry we could easily distinguish the words pronounced by mr merritt's punctilious waiter i will see if the ladies are home sir may i trouble you for your card card i have no card how dare you ask for my card in this house was the angry reply of a very hoarse voice get out of the way will you i'll knock you into the middle of next week who do you suppose i am i'm the brother of your mistress you silly goon and i'll report your conduct well what are you staring at now will you show me to mrs merritt to evelyn to my sister or not mrs willard clasped her hands in alarm as these words reached her ear but evelyn followed the impulse of her heart and springing to the door threw it open richard is it possible and in spite of the gaping waiter who was looking on in silent wonder evelyn burst into a fit of merry laughter i could hardly help participating at once in her merriment and in her mother's consternation as i surveyed the grotesque individual who stood with the doorknob clasped in one hand and the other stretched out towards evelyn it is one of mr richard willard's peculiarities that his garments always appear to be worn in evidence of the friendly terms on which he lives with mankind they are always either too small or too large for him although they might have been an excellent fit for a friend in this instance his limbs appeared to have elongated after they were inserted into his clothes as he thrust out his brown and sun-baked hand to greet evelyn the coat sleeve into which his arm had been dexterously forced made a desperate effort to retreat towards his elbow leaving bare his long wrist and displaying an undergarment of doubtful whiteness his strapless nether accoutrements evinced the same obvious desire to mount upwards and eschew all contact with the dusty wellingtons that painfully encased his feet there is always that mingling of opposites of the jockey and sloven in his costume which perfectly accords with that strange blending of mauvaison and impudence apparent in his character his grass-green coat had lost its first verdant freshness but it had been brushed with scrupulous care and was worn with an air of burlesque foppishness quite indescribable his coffee-coloured shirt-collar was folded with a byronian turn over a dingy scarf-cravat upon the artistical tie of which great labour and thought had been expended 
and faintly from amidst the cravat's dusty folds shone a jeweled brooch of doubtful genuineness. His long, lightish hair was carefully parted with girlish grace upon his forehead and smooth on either temple, while its split and shaggy ends luxuriated in melodramatic disorder about his sunburnt and weather-beaten countenance. His face, too, was adorned with whiskers, cultivated with scientific skill, but obstinately growing in scraggy patches about his yellowish cheeks, like fruitful spots on a sandy desert. After Evelyn's first exclamation, every one of us stood or sat for a moment as though transfixed and wonderingly gazing at the unexpected intruder. Mrs. Willard broke the silence by half, screaming out, "'Richard, what on earth brought you back?' Richard replied by warmly saluting the whole company in turn, and then planting himself with widely parted feet before his mother, answering, "'What brought me back? Why, nature, to be sure. Nature, I wanted to see you all again. I don't admire living at a distance from one's family. Dick's not the boy for that.' Here he assumed a hamlet tone and air. There's too much of the brother and son in me, good mother, for that. But did you not like Texas? questioned Mrs. Willard. Like it? To be sure I did. Capital place, hard to beat. Some independent fellows there, I can tell you, splendid fellows. Gentlemen inside, good mother. And that's better than gentlemen that are only gentlemen out. But New York's the place for me. Not a state in the Union can hold a candle to it. I'm tired of traveling. I've seen enough of the world and have come at last to rest in the bosom of my family. Mrs. Willard's bosom heaved at the thought. Richard now sank into a luxurious armchair that stood invitingly behind him with a ludicrous expression of affection, which was too sincere to excite my risibility, distorting rather than illuminating his visage. "'Well, Richard, I do believe,' commenced Evelyn, placing her hand affectionately on his shoulder. "'Don't call me Richard!' shouted he, interrupting her. "'Haven't I told you a thousand times that I will be called Dick? Dick's more independent. It's just the name for an American. Do you suppose traveling has made a fool of me? No. My outward man, it may have polished, but it has left my heart, my heart, Evie, the same.' An answer was upon Evelyn's lips, and from that unusually mild expression of her eyes, I knew that it was a kind one, but Richard rattled on before she could speak. "'How's Walter, Evie? Treats you well, don't he? Remember, you must come to me for advice. Shan't charge you a heavy council fee.' How am I looking, Evie? Well, am I not? Traveling hasn't harmed me, though I've seen something of the world. By the by, talking of looks, I've a handsome fellow to introduce to you, Evie. Colonel Damoreau of the regular army, a splendid, independent fellow. Met him by accident in New Orleans. Both of us traveling for pleasure. 
He took a fancy to me, and I, of course, returned the compliment, as every real gentleman was bound to do. In a pretty low water I was just then, had to travel on foot from Nacogdoches to New Orleans, and... How did you carry your wardrobe? inquired Mrs. Willard. Carry it? Why, as I do now, and always did before, on my back. There's no use of a man keeping more clothes than he can wear at one time. It only breeds trouble and makes for washing and mending. When those I have wear out, I throw them away and manage to get another suit. Plaguey hard work sometimes, but I console myself by remembering that sparrows are clothed, and so shall I be. That's a philosophy for you, true philosophy. What about Colonel Demereaux? asked Evelyn. Why, he fell in with me, and I fell in with him. He's a splendid fellow, rich as a nabob, and generous as a woman. He's traveling for amusement, and as I amused him, and he amused me, and we were going to the same way, we went together. He paid the shot, of course. I told him who you all were, and where you lived, and all about you. He's dying to see you, Evie, and I gave him such a description. I must introduce you, and make no mistake, take care of your heart. He beats Walter all hollow, he does. Just at that moment, the parlor door opened, and Laura Hilson entered, followed by Mr. Merritt himself. I caught the expression of Laura's eyes as they rested upon Richard, and then returned cautiously to Mr. Merritt. The first look was one of irresistible triumph. The second seemed to say, Look there, there is your brother. Mr. Merritt grew ashy pale. Evelyn, perfectly unembarrassed, saluted Laura, and was advancing towards her husband when Richard courageously started up. Blue and purple and red and scarlet spots were forming a rainbow on his face as he thrust himself before his sister and blustered out. "'Hey, Walter, how do you do? Here I am, you see!' "'I observe you are here, sir,' replied Mr. Merritt, with appalling gravity, and accompanying his words with a formal bow. "'Richard did not find Texas a very agreeable place of sojourn,' interposed Mrs. Willard, in a conciliatory voice. "'I am in hopes that we shall discover—' "'Beg your pardon, good mother,' exclaimed Richard.' found it an exceedingly agreeable place. Couldn't like any place better. Only the ties of nature drew me back to my family. I'm a brother and a son, sir, continued he enthusiastically, and turning to Mr. Merritt, and those ties leak me to New York. Laura Hilson again glanced at Mr. Merritt, who colored as he met her eye. Mrs. Willard commenced some further explanation or palliation of her son's conduct, but Richard would not permit her to speak without interruption. She could hardly conceal her vexation. Ellen looked distressed, and Evelyn at once amused and annoyed. Laura, 
after bowing to Richard, whom she purposely passed, walked towards the window. Richard returned the bow in the most grotesquely reverential manner, and expressed himself grateful for her complimentary treatment. Mr. Merritt, without taking further notice of any of us, even of his wife, joined Laura at the window, and she conversed with him for some time in an undertone. Richard, who was just sufficiently abashed to assume more boldness than ever, soon bustled up to Mr. Merritt and said, "'Well, Walter, I see you take care of Evie. She looks well. Never saw her look better. Handsome house you've got. Good location. Fine furniture. Everything as it should be.' Mr. Merritt did not reply to Mr. Richard Willard's approbatory remarks. I do not know how this unpleasant scene would have ended had it not been for an accident which increased our annoyance at the time, yet, like most accidents, turned out fortunately in the end. Richard, upon whose brow the moisture of excitement was rapidly gathering, drew out his flaming red handkerchief to wipe away the drops as they rolled down his face. This same handkerchief had fallen a few moments previous near a coal scuttle, which the officious waiter, solely for the purpose of seeing what was taking place, had brought into the room. It seemed a relief to our unfortunate friend to conceal his glowing cheeks, and I was surprised to see him diligently rubbing forehead, cheek, and chin. But lo, wherever the fatal handkerchief passed, a long black streak spread itself around each renewed friction. I was the first one to observe this mishap, and my involuntary ejaculation attracted the attention of the others. Everybody looked at Richard, whose begrimed face grew scarlet at our inspection. "'What are you all staring and laughing at?' demanded he, in real confusion and pretended anger. Mrs. Willard hastily rose, and took his arm to lead him out of the room. It was with difficulty that she could give utterance to the words, "'Richard, your face, your handkerchief, the coal scuttle, come with me.' Richard showed no inclination to obey, but she determinedly forced him to retire, much to the relief of all present. When they were gone, Mr. Merritt rang the bell and ordered tea, but made no remark on what had passed. Laura Hilson laid aside her bonnet at Evelyn's request, and appeared in unusually good spirits. Evelyn quickly regained her composure, and evidently regarded the unpleasant scene which had just taken place as merely an amusing incident. We all drew around the fire, but Mr. Merritt still looked gloomy, and his whole conversation was addressed to Laura, whose tone in replying to him offended me. There was something peculiar in it, something that seemed to say that a species of confidence was established between them, that they were good friends, and understood each other perfectly well. When Mrs. Willard returned to the room, it was without Richard. Not a remark concerning him was made, but this silent avoidance of a subject is more ominous than expressed dissatisfaction. 
I was ill at ease, and my afternoon's encounter rendered me unfit to contribute my might to the general entertainment. I therefore shortened my visit as much as possible. Mr. Merritt accompanied Laura and myself home immediately after tea. I afterwards heard that he spent the rest of the evening in the parlor at Fleecer's with Laura. End of chapter 5